this morning at one of our more well one of the more well-known sections of Jesus Sermon on the Mount one of, some of his more well-known commands that he gives he says ask seek and knock and if you have your bible this morning I'd like you to turn over with me to uh, Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 7 because that's where we're headed uh, and if you came here this morning without a bible uh, or you don't have one that's in a good modern translation we have some uh, on the table there in the back that we would like to give you uh, we would love to send you home with a bible um, because everybody needs one uh, it's the guidebook for life and um, and we'd like to make sure that you have one in a translation you can understand and read uh, and if you found your way there i'd like to read verse 7 and 8 with you here matthew chapter 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Uh, you know, I, I, as I said, these are familiar verses. And what I've realized as I've studied this week is that Sometimes the very familiarity of something can cause us to miss the really obvious. You ever done that? Uh, my wife calls it testosterone poisoning. She says that men, have, because of their testosterone, have this unique ability to not be able to see anything that is right in front of their face. Right? <laughs> like, you open their fridge and it's like, do we have any... Yes, it's right there, right? <laughs> um, and sometimes I think that afflicts us. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just us men, I don't know. But it afflicts us as we look at the Scripture, too, and we, we fail to see what is really obvious in the text. And a lot of times when you know, people, there are kind of, kind of two schools of thought with preachers on these verses. Uh, one, one, the more intellectual guys... Look at the Greek verbs that are here underlying this English translation. And they will say, well, now, ask, seek, and knock are all in the present imperative tense, which indicates ongoing action in the present. And that's true, right? And so the idea is ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And so then they will give a wonderful sermon about persistence in prayer and how if you haven't got what you've received from God you just haven't knocked long enough and if you if you haven't found what you were seeking you just need to keep seeking and if you need if you if, if you haven't uh, asked uh, long enough yet you just need to keep asking right I can give that sermon um, I've heard that sermon right ask and keep asking Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Keep on knocking. You know? Um, and in some sense, there's not a lot wrong with that in that God does tell us elsewhere in the Scriptures to be persistent in prayer and to be diligent to seek Him and to uh, uh, continue pursuing Him in a relationship. In fact, the most important goal of your life would be that you would continue to pursue God day by day, moment by moment, for the rest of your life, right? I just don't think that's what this text is really about. And the other school of thought uh, is uh, one that's really more 
fits in better with some of our uh, brothers and sisters that are of a more Pentecostal bent. You know, they, they see this uh, passage as kind of a blank check that I get to write on God's account. That where, um, this is called in some circles, um, name it and claim it, that's more of the fans. Uh, blab it and grab it if you're not a fan, right? Uh, but anyway, the, the idea is, is that somehow because Jesus makes me this promise that whatever I ask for, that God has to give me. Whatever it is that I want, that God owes me because he said that I could ask and he, I would receive. That I could seek and I would find. That I could knock and the door would be open. So therefore, brothers and sisters, amen, right, uh, that, that you're going to get whatever you ask from God. As if somehow God is some kind of a, a supersized version of, of the genie in the lamp who exists up there to give me what I materialistically want. Is that what this text is about? I don't think so. I don't think that's what this is about. In fact, I think that if you really look at these verses, what you need to understand is that they really aren't about us at all. They're about God. As the one who gives and opens and who provides what we need. Not because we have been so righteous or so persistent or so unyielding in our request, but because God is good and gives generously to those who love Him and those whom He loves. It's about God as a loving Father and as a good Father. You know how I know? Because later in the text, in the same context as these verses, Jesus is going to give us a couple examples that tell us that this text is not about us, it's about God. And what kind of God He is towards us. It isn't some carte blanche kind of a thing where if you just do the right thing, well then God will bless you. As much as it is that God is good and therefore He will bless you regardless of what kind of person you are. Because God is that good. And God is that loving. And God is that persistent in His goodness to us. It isn't about you and I at all, really. Except as the recipients of God's good gifts. The point is is that God will be found faithful. That He will open the door to us. Because He is good and He loves us. And on top of that, He knows better than we do what it is that we actually need. And what we need is not more stuff, but more of Him. Most of us, if we're really honest, we couldn't fit all of the stuff we presently have in a 26-foot U-Haul. We don't need more stuff. We do need to know God 
better and to take on more of the character of Christ and to grow in maturity and to walk with God in a deeper way. Amen? And I think that's what he is telling us that he will supply to us. He supplies our needs too, our material things that we have to have to live and to function and to serve in ministry. But his purpose is not to give us the material stuff of life, but to give us himself. Because that is the best of all possible gifts. And God is the one who opens the door. God is the one who knows what we need to receive and gives it to us generously. Because God is good. I want to dive deeper in here with you. Uh, Verse 9 through 11. I want you to read along with me. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, you would have to ask my children what they think of me as a father. They probably have a pretty good opinion today. Went to Six Flags yesterday, had a lot of fun. So uh, today they probably think highly, right? Uh, maybe other days they wouldn't. Um, but I hope they would tell you that I love them and that I show love to them all the time. I hope that they would tell you that I would happily lay my life down for any one of them at any time, any place, anywhere. I, ha- I hope that they would tell you, because it's true, that they are my pride and joy, and they have blessed Karen and I's life immeasurably, that we have been richly benefited by the entry of every single one of them into the world. And we have had a ton of fun being parents. You know, uh, we used to get, there were some people that we knew before we had kids that I think they were trying to help us. But they would say things like this, well, just wait until you have kids. Okay, and then after we had them, it was, well, just wait until they become teenagers. It was like, you know, the next stage was always going to be really awful, right? And what's, what we have found to be true is that we have had fun at every place along the way. We were having so much fun, we had five kids, uh, five and under at one point, right? We, we had an enjo- we've had an enjoyable life with them. And on top of that, I know that my kids are better than your kids. True story. You know how I know? Because they're mine, right? And I hope... I would hope that if you're a parent in this room, that you feel identically the same way about your kids that I feel about mine. That they are your pride and joy, and that you would happily lay your life down for them, and that their entry into your life has just increased God's blessing on you. And that they're better than mine because they're yours. I hope that you feel that way. Uh, I hope that your kids know that they are deeply loved and admired by by you and by their other parent. Because that is the best possible situation for a family, and it's certainly, I think, God's design for our family. 
But look at this passage here. Jesus is not describing father of the year stuff here. Uh, No parent with even a base level of love and concern for their child gives rocks instead of bread or snakes instead of fish. Uh, The only kind of parent who would do that would be a parent with a deep-seated cruelty abiding in their heart. Amen? I mean, you you know, you don't have to, you know, necessarily be winning awards. But this is, uh, you know, if you're you're the kind of parent who, um, who gives snakes to their kid when they're hungry, um... You know, somebody needs to call social services at a minimum. Maybe the Department of Corrections, depending on what kind of snake we're talking about, right? Here, son, here's a rattlesnake. Work it out. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, most parents that I know put those little plastic things in all the plugs just to keep the kid from sticking, you know, something metal and pointy into that, right? We're not going to give a viper to our child. We wouldn't do that. Right? And like I say, this is hardly Father of the Year stuff. You know, you don't win awards at the end of the year when, when you know, or if, you, if, you, uh, you know, if you're talking or, or evaluating your, your job as a parent, you don't say, well, you know, um, I've always been good to you. I've never given you any rocks to eat. Well, of course not. Right? I've never handed you any live rattlers for a snack. You know, this isn't an Ozzy Osbourne concert, right? You don't do that. And Jesus' point is that no child, no matter how rambunctious or how hard to get a handle on, would ever deserve a parent who treated him that way, right? But sometimes I think people view God that way. They think of God as somehow like the great cosmic killjoy who exists at a minimum to tell everybody not to do anything fun, not to enjoy anything in life, not to possess anything good or that brings them delight. And they think that uh, on top of that, that God is cruel or at best indifferent to their needs and their pain. And what Jesus is teaching us here is He's reminding us that God isn't like that at all. You know, sometimes people, because of the failings and sin of their own parents, when they hear the Scriptures talk about God as a father, they have this picture of this person that was in their life that deeply disappointed them and hurt them. And they go, well, I don't really understand this whole idea of God being like my father because my father was absent or my father was a drunk and abused me or my father ran around on my mom or whatever, okay? And people then tend to kind of import that image into and lay it over their view of God. But Jesus is saying God is not like that. He's not only not like the worst of human fathers, he's much better than the very best of us. And and the point is this, human fathers, even the very best of us, even the very best men are still that 
they're still men at the end of the day. They're still human beings. And human beings, even the very best of us, are going to sin and we're going to fall short of God's holiness. I have done some things as a father which I will not share today, but of which I'm not especially proud. There have been times where there has been anger in our home. There has been yelling in our home. There has been correction delivered in anger in our house. I'm not proud of those moments. And I fall short of God and His holiness. But here's the thing. God never falls short in His love and His provision for us. He always does what is best for us. And if we who are the very best of us, you know, Jesus is drawing a comparison from the lesser to the greater. If even the very best of us would not give our kid a snake when they want a snack, how much more will God give good gifts to those who are His children? Amen? How much... If, and Jesus puts it in comparison. He says, if you who are evil, we don't like to use that word, but it's the word Jesus uses to describe people who are sinful. And it's a good word, good description. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more can God, who by implication is holy and perfect and righteous in every way, also know how to give good gifts to His children. Amen? If even the best of us know how to you know, do things that are good for our kids, send them to camp, take them to Six Flags, feed them regularly, you know, make sure they're adequately clothed, you know, uh, Make sure they don't get into the poison ivy. You know, these kinds of things that everybody who's a reasonable parent would do. How much more can God, who is perfectly loving, and will God, who is perfectly loving, and, and perfectly holy, and always does what is right, give good gifts to those of us who are His children? In other words, if our mental picture is of God, the cosmic killjoy, or God, the indifferent father, or God, the cruel ruler, then we need to get a different one. Because God is good, and He delights to give good gifts to His children. We need a theological revolution in our thinking, because that is that God is not like sometimes the picture we have. He is good. He is a loving Father. He's a smiling Father. He's a Father who loves to give good gifts to His kids. Amen? So let's look here. Now this next verse is about us. And Jesus is giving some application. We do well to pay attention to it. He says, verse 12, So... Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You need to circle that word so in your Bible. 
It's a word for a conclusion. In other words, if this is true, therefore do this. Right? And Jesus wants us to do what follows as a result of knowing and believing what came before. So in other words, you could say it like this. Since God is a good father who generously gives good, good gifts to his children, we also ought to treat other people how God treats us. Since God uh, has love and goodness that overflows to us, so love and goodness ought to overflow from us to other people. That if God is like this with you, then you ought to be like the same with other people that you encounter. Because part of following Jesus, I read this somewhere, I think it was in my Bible, in fact, that the goal of the Christian life was that we were to look like Jesus, right? That we were to do the things that Jesus did that the world might come to know Him. And that in the same way, Jesus is telling us, this is the kind of thing that God does, therefore it's the kind of thing we ought to do. Amen? Make sense? So how do we know if we're living the way Jesus wants us to live? It's very simple. He gives us a guideline. Treat other people like you would want to be treated. If you do that, then Jesus says you will fulfill everything that the law and the prophets is really about. The law and the prophets were not given, you know, which is Jesus kind of encapsulating term to refer to the whole Old Testament. He says, and if you understand what Jesus is talking about, what he's saying is this. A lot of times people think that that the law and the prophets were given somehow as some sort of list of rules that you were just supposed to keep. Because otherwise, if you didn't, God didn't like you. Okay? It wasn't about that. It was about being in a relationship with God, which then impacted how you treated and interacted with and conducted yourself among other people as well. So that you entered into a relationship with God, which had outgrowths in your communal life. And he says, if you treat other people like you would like to be treated, then you will fulfill everything that is written in the Old Testament. Because that's what it was about. Being in relationship with God, who is good and who loves you and who wants to give generously good gifts to you. And then as as an outgrowth of having been a recipient of God's grace, you are a dispenser then of God's grace. That God put grace into you and then you give it out to others. Now, please don't misunderstand me on this. Jesus is not saying that you can produce this response all by yourself. To to understand the golden rule, which is what that verse is called, that way is to totally misunderstand Jesus. I'll explain this in more detail next week when Jesus talks about enter through the narrow gate, exactly what he means. But briefly, what I'll tell you is this. If you do not do, if you don't have the first part of a relationship with God, 
you can't do the second part of treat other people like you would like to be treated. You won't be able to make that happen because you will lack something fundamental to doing that, which is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within your life to change you from the inside out to, uh, to think like and react like and behave like Jesus. And so if you don't have the relationship with God first, the other part will, the second part will not be possible. So I want to tell you just quickly how to have a relationship with God. I'm not going to belabor this because next week I'm going to hammer down on it pretty hard. But the first thing you need to, be, need to do if you want to enter into a relationship with God is you first need to admit what the Bible says is true about you is in fact true that you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from God. Uh, so that's A. Let me give you B. Next, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is perfect God and perfect men, perfect man who came to earth, who died on the cross for your sins in your place. Uh and then was raised from the dead to give you new life and to, and to purchase a place for you in heaven. And then C, you need to commit to following Jesus and to turn over control of your life to Him. And if you do that, you become what the Bible calls a Christian. Okay? It has a definition. It's not just somebody born in America who happens to to uh, you know, believe in God. It's someone who has admitted what the Bible says about them is true, believed what the Bible says about Jesus and what he came to do, and then committed their life to following Jesus and turned control of it over to him. And if you've never done that, then let today be the day in which you do. If, on the other hand... you have done that, then you are already my brother or sister by faith in Christ. And I think we ought to, just as we close, take just a second, or a few seconds actually, to examine ourselves to see if we have obeyed what Jesus says to us here. Take just a few moments to see if there are any people in your life that you have not treated like you would like to be treated or how God has treated you. Maybe it was this morning before church. Karen and I have had some of our most epic arguments in the car on the way to church, right? Or when we pull in the parking lot, we have to stop for a second and say to the children, we really screwed up there. We're sorry, will you forgive us? And then seek forgiveness from each other, right? Get right with the Lord along the way. Maybe it was this past week, or this past month, or this past year. Maybe it was a long time ago, and the wound that you caused has never fully healed. Regardless, we have a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children if we will ask, and if we will seek him, and if we will knock on the door of his throne room. And we're about to do that, by the way. I'm going to lead us in prayer. 
And just as you pray, I would encourage you to uh, pray along with David. Uh, Search me and know me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Wash me, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I will be, I'll have my sin forgiven and covered. Amen? Um, so I'm going to pray, and at, a, at, at, a, uh, at some point here in the prayer, I'm going to just leave a space. I didn't fall asleep up here. I'm giving you time to talk to the Lord privately. So I want to encourage you to do that, and then I'll uh, resume my prayer, and we'll close, all right? God, our Heavenly Father, we know that you are so good and so loving, and you pour out such good gifts on us that we cannot really wrap our arms around all the goodness that you have bestowed. Just in sending Jesus, Father, in fact, I don't even like the word just, Because in sending Jesus Christ, you have brought salvation and forgiveness and new life to billions of people. You are immeasurably good and you lavish on us beyond that great gifts. And Father, I pray that our picture of you would be of a loving and smiling Father who delights in his kids. Because, Father, we know that according to Jesus, that's exactly who you are. And, Father, I pray right now that you would reveal to us by your Holy Spirit any areas of our life where we have failed to treat other people with the same grace and mercy that you give to us. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus which cleanses us from all sin and removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west and is not counted against us for all eternity. Father, we pray that we would love you and follow you and pursue you with all that we are you have been so immeasurably good to us and that the love you have shown would overflow from us to a hungry world. We pray in Jesus' name.